You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Good morning to those who are in the chapel, those who are watching online, and certainly good morning to all of you in-person people also. It's good to see all of you all today. We're going to be in Isaiah today in a chapter that's called the, the crown jewel of the Old Testament. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said of this chapter, it is the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. This chapter speaks so specifically to Jesus and about Jesus that German theologians back in the 1800s said there's no way that this chapter was written before Christ came. And that thought was beginning to gain a lot of traction until 1947 when a 14-year-old boy was doing what 14-year-old boys do, throwing rocks into a cave, and a jar broke, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And this chapter, the 53rd church, uh, church, 53rd chapter of Isaiah was found, and a copy of this chapter was dated 300 years before the coming of Christ. So let's get to Isaiah 52 together, because you have to get a running start into Isaiah 53. So if you're a copy of God's Word, would you turn with me, please, to the 52nd chapter of Isaiah. If you're relatively new to church or relatively new to the Bible, trying to kind of find your way through, it's in the Old Testament. If you can find the book of Psalms, you'll hook a right about four books from there. So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. And there's 66 chapters to Isaiah. It's a pretty hefty book. Um, Jeremiah's on the other side of that. So let's go to Isaiah 52 together today. As we begin to kind of prepare our hearts for, for resurrection, as we consider Holy Week, as we think about the cross of Christ, the fact that our debt has been paid. And what I want us to see today, what we're going to see today, is this gruesome but glorious picture of the cross of Jesus. Now Isaiah, he is writing this 750 years before Christ came. And we're going to see some passages, some verses in this chapter that give a very vivid description of the wrath of God, the justice of God, but also some very beautiful pictures of the love of God, the compassion, the mercy of God, some beautiful displays of his mercy. There's going to be some times that's going to let you know in these next few moments that we're going to be stunned by God's fury and then silenced by his love. Here's the warning I guess I have for you. We're taking our floaties off today and we're going to the deep end of the swimming pool. So this next chapter, this next chapter and a half, it's not, it's not for the weak of heart. It's not for the shallow of mind. So let's go there together. Isaiah chapter 52. Let's begin in verse 13. These are the last three verses of the 52nd chapter of Isaiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Let's stop real quick and understand these three verses together. 
First of all, the very first two words of verse 13 are my servant. Now this is speaking of Christ. Uh, How can we jump to that assumption? Well, eight times the New Testament, the 52nd and 53rd chapter of Isaiah are referenced in all eight times the New Testament. It is pointing back to Jesus. Every time it's referencing Jesus. We can tell this is Jesus because of the two descriptors that are given in verse 13 and verse 14. One is that he is divine. One, that he'll be a suffering servant. First of all, that this servant is divine. Verse 13 13 there, it says that he is high and lifted up. That, That description of high and lifted up is used four times in the book of Isaiah alone. And all four times high and lifted up is used. It is always describing the position of God, the exalted position of God. But here... High and lifted up is speaking about the exalted position of God's servant. It says here that this servant will be wise. Uh, Your Bible might translate that word understanding. Your Bible might even translate that word, he will prosper. But then a very key word here also, the divinity of this servant, the fact that this servant is divine, he is described here as being exalted. That is a description that's fit only for a king. Not only is this servant divine, this servant is also going to be suffering, a suffering servant. Verse 14, it says here that he will be marred or he'll be disfigured, uh, almost not even look like a man, not even look like a human. And the cross, the, the beatings, the lashing, the striking on Jesus certainly would accomplish this disfiguring. Here's what these three verses are saying. If you're going to take some notes today, he will be savaged, but he will save. He will be disfigured, but he will deliver us. It says in verse 15 that kings will shut up their mouths because of him. Verse 15, it says that he will sprinkle many nations. That sprinkling, that's a picture of an Old Testament sacrifice. That the blood of an animal in the Old Testament would be sprinkled upon the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. would be sprinkled upon the altar for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Isaiah is saying here that the blood of this servant will be sprinkled over all the nations. In fact, Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 15, verse 21, when Paul was speaking of Christ offering himself, offering his blood for all nations, all tribes, all people, everywhere. The very end of verse 15, if your Bible is still open, hopefully so, keep it open all morning long to this passage. We see here, for that which has not been told them, they begin to see that which they have not heard They understand this is Isaiah referencing already the Gentiles, the non-Jews. They will begin to see, the nations will begin to see this Christ, this promised one. They will begin to understand all that he has accomplished. This servant will be savaged on the cross, but he will save us through the cross. Highland, listen, this servant is not to be pitied. He's to be worshipped because he will save us. Here comes the crown jewel Isaiah 53 begins with two rhetorical questions. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, who is going to believe these words that are written? And who are the people that the arm of the Lord has been revealed to them? The arm of the Lord is speaking of the power of God. The power of the Lord. He rules with his arms. And this, this power is, see this word, revealed up close and personal in this servant. And yet the people to whom he is revealed will reject him. Let's go to verse 2 and verse 3. 
For he, still speaking of this servant, we know now in a New Testament context, speaking of Jesus, for he grew up before him, before God, like a young plant. Like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Here's the second thing we see in this passage. God reveals himself in Christ, but we reject him. This servant does not burst onto the scene like a mighty oak or some beautiful tree in blossom. Instead, the servant comes on the scene in verse 2 like a young plant, like a root that comes out of the dry ground. That should cue our minds immediately to a manger scene, to a humble stable where this baby boy is born in total obscurity. He had, verse 2, no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should even desire him. No, this servant would be, verse 3, despised and rejected. He would be a man of sorrows. He would understand our grief, be acquainted with our grief, one from whom we'd hide our faces. We would not look at him. He was despised. We, We desired him not. We esteemed him not. We did not treasure him. Do you see here the humility of Christ? Do you see here the arrogance of man? We wanted nothing to do with him. We were blinded by our self-centeredness. We were blinded by our desire for power. We were, des- we were blinded completely by our pride. And Jesus didn't even get a second glance from us. Now let's go to the pinnacle of this passage. Here's a mountaintop of the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah 52, beginning verse 4 with me. Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him, or we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep, we've gone astray. We have all turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There are two sacrificing remembrances in the Old Testament. The first one is Passover, where a family would would bring in a lamb, a, a nice, cuddly, soft little lamb. I'm sure the kids would name it and play with it and love it and then they would kill it right not the kids I'm sure dad dad would take it outside that was a blood sacrifice that was needed listen to cover the sins of the people that blood would cover the sins of the people the second sacrificial remembrance of the old testament was the day of atonement on your calendar sometimes it might pop up as Yom Kippur the day of the covering, the day of atonement. And the day of atonement is, is found in Leviticus uh, chapter 16. And what happened in this day of remembrance, that two goats would be brought out. One goat would be sacrificed, but the other goat would be set free. But only after the high priest had taken his hands and covered the head of that goat and confessed all of the sins of the community onto that goat. Then that goat would be led out. This is where we get our word scapegoat. That, gate would, that, that goat would be led out of the gate, the city gate. 
and would be taken into the wilderness. He would be carried away, never to be seen again. In fact, what it was is a picture of, of our sins being taken away, our sins being carried away, never to be seen again. That's the exact word that's used right here in verse four. He has borne our griefs. He has, here it is, carried our sorrows. So what I did in my Bible this week is I circled that word carried. And next to it, I just made a notation, Leviticus chapter 16. Just as that goat took out and took away and carried away the sin, the shame, the guilt of the community. In the same way, we see here that this Christ, this promised one would carry away our sorrows. Listen to this and consider this with me. Christ is carried to death so that you and I, we could be carried to life. This is what Hebrews chapter 13 tells us. This Christ, this Jesus, he was led outside of the city. He was led outside of the city. He was carried away that he might die for us. And then the author of Hebrews says, so that we might be made holy. See, Christ is carried to death so that we can be carried to life. Now, how does he do this? So first of all, he will take the penalty of sin. This is how you and I, believers in Christ, how we are carried to life because this Christ, Jesus has taken the penalty of sin. He will be, verse four, stricken. He will be, verse four, afflicted. Verse five, pierced. Crushed, verse 5, wounded. He will carry the penalty of our sin, but it's so much more than that. Don't miss this. In fact, you've missed Isaiah 53 if you've missed this. You will miss all of the story of the cross if you miss this. He will not only take the penalty of sin, secondly, he'll take the place of sinners. It's not just that he takes the penalty of sin. That would be enough, but he also takes the place of sinners. Look how many times you see the word our or we or us in verses four, five, and six. Let's go back to it again. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's 11 times in three verses. Isaiah is just reminding us over and over and over again that Jesus is doing this for us. The Lamb of God in our place. It is Jesus who would bear our sin, would bear our shame. He's enduring our, verse 5, crushing our chastisement, which means scolding our wounds. He's not just carrying away the penalty of our sin. He is taking our place and he will be silent in his suffering look at Isaiah 53 verse 7 and he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression, now God owns this, of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. A reminder that this 
Christ, this promised one, this servant, Jesus, had no sin in him that required such suffering. Consider this with me. The innocent was buried in the earth so the guilty could be raised to heaven. See, it's it's, it's the great transaction of the redemptive story. His death for our life, his burial in the earth so that we could be raised to heaven. In fact, it says here he made his grave with the wicked. He was a lamb walking straight to his own slaughter. He was a sheep standing before its shears and he was stunningly quiet as he encountered death and as he was laid in the borrowed tomb of a rich man. He had to be lowered so that we could be raised. He was struck down so we could be lifted up. He died so that we could live. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many, here you are in the story, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he, this servant, poured out his soul to death and was numbered, in fact there were two on either side of him, numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Here's what I want you to see in this passage, friends. Christ on the cross was not some human strategy. It was God's divine plan. Who is responsible for orchestrating the cross of Christ? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? No, it was the Father, verse 10, who willed it. It was the Father, God, verse 11, who will be satisfied in it. How can it be, dads? How can it be that a father would be satisfied in the crushing of his son? Well, just think about this with me. God is infinitely holy. He is perfectly glorious, forever righteous. He is right and perfect in all of his ways. Because he is perfect when there is sin, his wrath is inflamed because of it. Injustice does the same to us. We saw it in Atlanta this week. We see injustice and and flames rise up within us. This sense of of, of something is is wrong. There's a sense of injustice. It inflames us. And if that injustice inflames us and we're imperfect, how much more does the righteous holiness and justice of God begin to inflame his own wrath when he sees sin? You see, it's impossible for God because he's perfect in his holiness, because he's perfect in his justice to look at my sin and to look at your sin and say, oh, no big deal. I guess I'll just look right past that. You see, that would compromise the very essence of the justice of God. That would compromise the very glory of God. So how can this God who is infinitely just also save sinners like us? The answer is the crushing of this servant. Because in the crushing of this servant, God will fully display the extent 
of his justice, but also fully display to us the extent of his love, the full expression of his grace. He will do all of this because of his love for sinners, because of his mercy toward you, his mercy toward me. Consider this, God is serious about shattering sin and serious about saving sinners. This is what's happening at the cross. It's the shattering of our sin, the shattering of the penalty of our sin, but also so serious, so directed in his love for us that this Christ would leave heaven to find us because God loves sinners. He is so serious in his mercy toward you. He is so serious in his love toward you. Toward the least deserving person in this room, God is so serious about his mercy for you. And he's not some out of control tyrant. All of these things in this passage, all these things that we're discovering together today are so consistent with the attributes of his character. He is fully just and fully merciful. You see, his glory, his justice, his grace, none of those things are compromised at all on the cross. None of those things are diminished on the cross at all. In fact, just the opposite. They are fully realized at the cross. They are wholly demonstrated at the cross. So in his death, Jesus becomes, verse 10, an offering. An offering. For who? Verse 10 gives us the answer. For his offspring, for his family, for his people. Jesus gives new life to women and men from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation and every people group and every color who will then become children of God. This is why racism has no place within the family of God. Christ came for all who would believe. This is the power of the gospel. The God accepts unacceptable people. Surely you have thought that before. Surely you have felt that before. Surely you have walked into church before and thought, I am so unacceptable. In my sin, my shame, my past, my thoughts, my addictions, God accepts unacceptable people. God loves to bring on the inside those who think I'll always be on the outside through his cross and through his blood. Also, God lifts shameful people. Some of you are probably here today ashamed of what you did this past weekend or ashamed of something you did 15 years ago. God loves to lift up those who are overwhelmed with the grief and the shame of their past. He loves to lift us up out of the miry clay and set our feet upon the rock. God also adopts rebels as as royalty. He adopts sons and daughters into his family. He adopts sinners as his own family. He doesn't just forgive us. I mean, that would be enough. We could celebrate for all of eternity that he simply forgave us. But not only does he forgive us, he then brings us into his family as royal daughters, as royal sons. Here's the power of the gospel. God declares the guilty innocent. Only God can charge you as guilty And only God can charge you as innocent because of the cross of his son, Jesus, and all who surrender, all who repent, all who by faith in Christ believe that Christ is the son of God, the resurrected one, God calls them innocent and forgiven. So think about this. The 
holy God of the universe looks across this room and looks across Waco and looks across the world and he says, I think with great delight, I love guilty people. Believe in me and I will place all of your sin and all of your shame upon Christ and I will give all the right standing of Christ to you. This is the mountaintop message. Put your sins onto Jesus. Let him take them away. Christian sister, listen. Christian brother, listen to me. Do not live another moment under the guilt of your sin. Christian family listening today, here today, do not live another moment under the shame of your past. Through Christ, it has been taken away. Your debt has been paid. This is why we remember the cross together today. Would you stand with me, please, and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this cross today. Thank you for your servant, divine and suffering. He didn't just take the penalty of our sin. He took our place. Jesus, that was not your cross. That was our cross. That was not your shame. Our shame is what it was. God, you you came to us in Christ and we rejected you. We didn't even give you a second look. And then you stood in our place as a man of sorrows, as the son of God, as the perfect lamb, as the Passover to declare our day of atonement that would last forever. We thank you for this power of the gospel because of the beauty and the scandal of the cross. Through the name of that servant, that son of God, we remember the cross together.